I was always agitated by this disconnect that the church seems to have a subculture within society that is getting further and further disconnected from the real world and that 85% of the body is out in the real world without a game plan for how do they activate their calling in a way that's congruent with the mission of the church globally. And that's what, uh, what drove me in a sense to go put the two worlds together, the world of ministry and the world in Babylon and say, actually that creates a different paradigm. It's a paradigm where the sacred invades the secular and the spiritual penetrates the natural and Christians carry within them the metamorphous potential of changing the world around them if they'll occupy the sphere that God gave them. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Dr. Lance Wallnow. Now, I'm guessing that some of our regular listeners are familiar with Dr. Wallnow, but there are probably a good number of you that have never heard of Lance. John and I were in that camp just over a year ago, but his teachings came into my life at a critical point and have shaped my thoughts and beliefs about the direction for this show more than anyone. Because of that, he is the top guest that John and I targeted from the get-go of this show. Now, Lance is an internationally recognized and highly sought-after business consultant, advisor, coach, and conference speaker. Among his messages are cultural transformation, the seven mountains of influence, doing business supernaturally, the power of clarity, and the subject of most of this this interview, Convergence. A lot of people also call Convergence destiny, but in a nutshell, Convergence means you finally get to a place where almost everything you do, at least professionally, is rooted in the gifts and the personality or temperament that God has given you. If you've ever wondered about purpose or calling or dialing into your destiny, this is a show you'll want to save and listen to a number of times. If you know anyone that's been in a season of transition and they're just kind of wandering, trying to figure it out, this is a great show for you to share with them. I'm going to stop talking and just get to the meat of this episode because this conversation was so deep and it went so long that we're splitting it into two episodes. Here's our conversation with Lance Wallnow on today's Eternal Leadership. Everything that Lance shared is everything that I've been searching for the answers this last three years of discovery in my life since my accident, you know, trying to live a life of significance and impact. So, Lance, we are excited to have yes. you here. Welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. and uh, Thanks for setting this up and here i am you know in my unshaved authentic real condition just uh work i'm working on a book right now so i'm at home and and happened to uh happen to have felt that this was an important uh, time to meet you guys so i'm glad that god put it together well lance as we get going one of the things i want i want to share with our listeners is a little bit about your story because it, it really leads to the stuff that you're kind of teaching right now you, you started in business went to pastor then back in business so how did that all take place yeah you know what's interesting is in the i'm like what 58 years old now so in the 70s and 80s when uh the church was in uh you all remember where you were in the 70s and 80s, right? And it was the church then had a very strong division between the spiritual, the church, the revival, or the 700 Club was kind of like kicking off. There's a lot of innovations that were happening in Christendom. And in the world for me was spiritual or natural. 
And if you really want to make a difference, you don't do business, you try to get in ministry. And that was my paradigm. And in fact, the dominant leadership culture training at Fuller and in other cutting edge seminaries was, if you want to change the world, you get to Christian leaders who are primarily in ministry and you work with them. And I, I assume that was true. And so off to, um, I was in Babylon. Can you believe this? I was in Babylon, Long Island when I was wrestling with my call to the ministry. And I kept thinking that I was in the wrong place because anybody knows Babylon isn't the right, isn't the right uh, word for your ministry. So uh, while I was trying to get out, the Lord kept saying to me that I was in training in the right place. And I thought, well, who in the world does training in Babylon? And uh, the answer really is Daniel and, mm-hmm. uh, and the Hebrew children living in a post-Israel culture, living in a Babylonian-dominated culture give us the perfect model for where the church is now in a post-Christian America, and for many parts of the world where, um, from Iran, where right now it's estimated that 13 to 14 percent of the population are Christians, to um, China, where it's estimated 10 percent are believers, what we have is a whole moment in time when believers, 85 percent of which are called to mountains or spheres of influence outside of a full-time ministry, meaning 15% are called to the church mountain mm-hmm. or the full-time ministry mountain. 85% are in another place. I was the generation that thought there was a division. And so for me, the reason why I'm curating this different worldview I got now is because I'm a, I'm a victim to a degree of a false dichotomy. I left business to go into ministry because I thought ministry was more pleasing to God than secular work. Then as I started working for 20 years in uh, planting churches, church growth, church consulting, leadership development, um, and revival culture stuff, I realized that um, actually the pastors are a key agent in equipping the saints to do their work. And their work isn't in the local church. They're only there so long. So why don't we equip believers to do what they're called to do outside the church and actually fulfill the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of nations? And that question, remember like, remember the Matrix yeah. um, back then in the day when uh, Morpheus is talking to Neo and he's talking to him about the splinter in your mind and that, that language stuck out, the splinter in your mind, that I was always agitated by this disconnect that the church seems to have a subculture within society that is getting further and further disconnected from the real world, and that 85% of the body is out in the real world without a game plan for how do they activate their calling in a way that's congruent with the mission of the church globally. And that's what, uh, what drove me, in a sense, to go put the two worlds together, the world of ministry and the world in Babylon, and say... Actually, that creates a different paradigm. It's a paradigm where the sacred invades the secular and the spiritual penetrates the natural. And Christians carry within them the metamorphous potential of changing the world around them if they'll occupy the sphere that God gave them. Well, Lance, when you were in the business world prior to moving into full-time ministry, you had some really great successes. I mean, God gave you some really cool ideas that, yep. that, that really changed the, the bottom line for the company that you worked for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the idea that um, Christianity uh, can be actually working in business 
is a fascinating uh, concept because in business, what matters is your profit and, of course, your um, your bottom line. And every company has a culture. And what I found was that if I would take the gifts that God gave me and consecrate them to the service like Joseph with Pharaoh or Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, if I would actually not become an adversary to the world system um, or a rigid evangelist trying to convert everybody, if I would actually come alongside of leaders and help them discern what their assignments were, um, that uh, God actually is working with unsaved people before they get saved. And that if you come alongside and unpack the dream they've got, you increase your leverage not only over them as a witness, but over the curation and creation of the culture of that corporation. And now we're the influence within a corporate culture that is also a witness. And it's a fascinating paradigm. So yeah, so I, now I'm saying it to you now, at the time I was feeling really conflicted because I'm thinking all I'm doing is making money for this business and how am I really affecting the kingdom? Meanwhile, I'm leading people to Jesus, I'm changing corporate culture, and I, I didn't see business as a sphere that needs to be occupied. I saw it as a place you get money to fund churches. So, so Lance, how do you love God with all your heart and still be blessed in heaven with what you're doing and do that in business? I think, I think it all comes down to reframing, doesn't it? It, it, it? You have to change the context of what you're doing. And so um, the, the, you know, the metaphor I think of now is Adam was in the garden. And what Adam was doing was he was supposed to operate from the garden, expanding it. If you find yourself in the other side of the garden, out there in the wilderness, what you do is you have to start curating and cultivating the garden around you. That means that, um, that you bring, you partner with God in the business. You ask the father what he's doing in the company that you can join him in. You ask him to make you a resource to solve the problems that they have so that you can, you can uh, demonstrate um, not only uh, your own ability for promotion, but that you can have a greater impact on touching the lives of people in the organization. In other words, you create a garden in the middle of, of the wilderness and you start to create your own. You know, it's like the shalom of God is what we, you know, what the Jewish people call the blessing of God. You create like a shalom zone. And you start with your own relationships. You start with your own physical office. You start with the, with the problems the company has and the solutions that you bring. And you really, uh, you create a different context for doing work. You're really advancing the kingdom of God in the work that you're doing. You're not doing a job in order to pay the bills. So what- it creates a very exciting kind of world. Once, once, you, once you see yourself as a as an Eden or a garden in the midst of Babylon, you say, well, my own space around me, I want in peace and I want my relationships to radiate something different. And you really start to occupy your sphere and expand it. You know, one of the things that you teach on that helped me pull those things together to be something actionable for myself is this concept of convergence. Could you, could you share on that and tell people what that is and how you teach that to people in different spheres? Oh, Sure. Well, you know, Jesus said, and he was 33-some years of age, and he said, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. And in that sentence, he, he, he summarizes something which every one of us has a longing to come to connection with, and that is, what is my unique assignment and purpose in earth? And how do I know if I'm doing it and when it's done? 
when you step into that subject, you come into this profound dialogue about calling. And calling is a very um, real thing because everyone that is born has gifts, talents, and abilities that are on loan from God to them. And there's and Jesus said to every man his work, that you can actually position yourself in a way that you can put a demand on, if you put it that way, um, the, uh, the, the, the Lord to reveal to you what your assignment is. And this, this is a study, convergence is the study of what happens when people come into the season where their gifts, talents, and abilities intersect the opportunity to do the thing they were created to do, which in the hedgehog principle of uh, Collins, David Collins, where he talks about the hedgehog idea being, what is it you can be best in the world at? One circle. And then what are you most passionate about? The other circle. And then the third is how do you monetize the engine? How do you resource it? Think that God actually is interested in you cultivating your talents to be the best in the world at something. And then take notice of what really excites you, what you love to do, and what brings you the most alive, because that's your passion. And then look at your present sphere of business and see where can you apply what you do best and love most to solve a problem that you get paid to solve. Now you're thinking really sharp, and you're moving towards a convergence of those three things. The term convergence was coined by uh, Dr. Robert Clinton of Fuller Seminary when he was a student of Peter Wagner's. And Bobby Clinton fascinated me because he's the only guy that did a academic study on destiny. There could be all kinds of sermon series on it, and they're all good, but he actually did a study. And like an academician, he was looking for key characteristics in the lives of biblical characters, historic people, and contemporaries that model convergence, where their talents and skills and abilities intersect with an opportunity to do something, and they are in the sweet spot of what they were created to do. That is the, you know, if I had to describe what being alive is, it's that. It's not zombie-like, you know, inactivity in a spiritually ecstatic mm-hmm. state. That could be the next <laughs> life, for all I know. Right. This life is when you're fully immersed in the thing you were created to do. And you know that you're in the center of the will of God doing it. The tragic thing, though, is that most Christians never achieve and most people really never get to that point, especially Christians. I think I think Bobby Clinton quoted it. Eighty percent of Christians never get there. And of the 20 that do, the average age that they get that is age 50. Yeah. And and that might not be the worst thing, Um Because what God is doing up until that point is he's giving you convergence processes and convergence moments. You know, most games are won in the fourth quarter. Um, In fact, all games are won in the last quarter, one way or the other. So so when you hit a certain point in life, and 50 seems to be the age in in the Western Hemisphere when it happens, all the pieces of your previous life journey start to come into a redefining clarity. And from 50 to 65, you're in the peak zone of leveraging influence in your career, your earning capacity, your social network, and your ability to mentor and transmit knowledge to the next generation. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that, the, that it can go higher than that, but I'm not worried that it doesn't go lower. I think sometimes the achievement obsession of American culture is to have it all when, in fact, while Joseph was in Potiphar's house, he was in a convergence process. And he was in convergence at that level of his life. But when you're in convergence, in what I would call a micro-convergence, meaning you're in 
the integration of what God wants you to do, but it's not your ultimate assignment. You have to be willing to allow the Lord, and both of you have done this, you have to be willing to allow the Lord to end the season so that you can enter the next season and address a whole new level of development in you to be able to actualize a higher development of convergence. And it's like stair steps. And as you go to the top, that 20% that make it there um, tend to be people that persevere in a ruthless assessment of seasons. They know when this one's over and they have the courage to step into the unknown of the season that follows. If you're unduly worried about money or reputation or security, you'll miss the invitation to risk the next level. Uh, If you check out, you might not be a candidate for who God wants to use for the next thing. But uh, what an exciting thought that convergence can happen at any age in life, but that there's an ultimate career convergence that is the most consequential use of who you are. And it happens in the season of life where you can make the most leverage out of every stupid thing you've ever done, every mistake you've ever made. And it becomes redemptive because it goes into your wisdom for how to do the thing that ultimately matters. So, so you're not really concerned about getting that age down from 50, say to 40, 35 to really try and help, you know, teach that younger generation to, take that first 15 years out there in the workforce and then hit their stride? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, um, I'm incredibly ambitious about people maximizing every season of life to go to the actualization of who they are and what they're called to do. What I, what I challenge is the definition of success can actually pull you out of convergence. So, for instance, let's take uh, Peter Wagner. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Peter's interesting studies, one of my mentors, and Clinton's teacher. And um, when Clinton was doing his research, he chose Peter Wagner as the model because Wagner was just in his sweet spot at Fuller when he was a professor there. They offered him the opportunity to be the dean of students. Now, anyone who's a governor or a mayor who gets our congressman who gets offered the ticket for a president would be a fool if they didn't um, you know, attempt to go for the next level. Mm-hmm. Peter, on the other hand, refused to go into the office of being the dean of the School of Theology. And his reasoning was brilliant. He said, why would I change what I'm doing now when it is what I do best and love most in order to attempt a higher promotion into something that brings me out of convergence? Hmm. So how many people in American success-driven culture have the ability to say no to more money or a bigger position because at this point it is taking them out of what it is that is convergence and moving them. And let's face it, if the devil can't stop you from getting to the top of the mountain, he could get behind you and push you prematurely. And so Joseph now is in front of Pharaoh, but he doesn't know how the agricultural system works. He doesn't speak the language properly. He doesn't even know how to dress like an Egyptian. And he goes before Pharaoh and interprets a dream. The probability is that at 30, he was at the right moment to come before Pharaoh, and it wasn't a failure that he didn't get there at 20. So, you know, Lance, when you're talking about the story with Peter, he was able to make that statement because he had just perfect clarity of who he was, what convergence looked like in his life. What are some things that you've done working with people to get to that place of that level of clarity? Well, it's interesting um, and, it, and, it, and it's really a synthesis of a couple of questions. One of them is, um, 
in taking your personal mountain, most people are not aware that um, they're fighting constraints in themselves. So, for instance, this opens up a whole different subject matter. Convergence Mm -hmm. is when you're in the sweet spot of the assignment and calling of God for this season of life. And that every season prepares you for the next level of invitation to a bigger assignment and a greater fruitfulness. So we set that over here. That's that's a great concept for, you know, career uh, attainment. In terms of getting there, um, one of the key things that I discovered was uh, the work of a guy named um, M.D. Flippin, who's got the Flippin Group, great last name, you can never forget it. And his research was on Eliel Goldratt. Goldratt was the uh, was a physicist from Israel who had perfected a theory called constraint theory in processes of of, of chemical a- interaction, where something down here is affecting what's happening up there, and everybody's focusing over here, but really the cause is down here. So he was challenged by American manufacturing to take his theory of constraints. And um, apply it to business. And it created a renaissance. Matter of fact, his book is one of the primary books that are studied by those that are in industrial management now. Because he talks about constraint theory being looking at the whole process of manufacturing and recognizing how any sequence that is feeding into the process can actually be the choke point. And it's not the production line. It's something further down backstream that you have to look at. So uh, Flip, uh, one one of my other mentors in life, said... If that's true for manufacturing, if it's true for business, if constraint theory is true for physics or, or for science, is it true for leadership? Now, there's a gold mine of information right there. So the question is, what are the hidden constraints within you or me that are militating against our ability to show up the way God wants us to show up to do what he called us to do? And if um, data is true, Many times your constraints are a blind spot, which means that you don't see it. A constraint, for instance, could be a strength overextended. So, you know, you uh, you get results by being forceful, decisive, risk-taking, confronting reality, moving at a fast pace. And then the question comes, to what degree is the misuse or overuse of that strength actually alienating people and hindering processes so that they can achieve the results you want? To what degree is your strength inappropriately applied? getting in the way of your own convergence. So now we go into the study of constraint theory and saying, let's just take a look at how constraints show up in your life. Um, Are there strongholds that linger emotionally, mentally, your paradigm? And if uh, if they do linger, and you're talking Christian stuff here, then if I was the devil, I won't resist you as much in the circumstances as I'm going to resist you in the area of your blind spot. Because if I can get in to an area that you're not aware of, I can sabotage you from the inside out. And so we find uh, under the stress of career development, a lot of people um, don't don't they feel the warfare, but they don't know where to put their finger on it. And constraint theory, from my perspective, helps you recognize the the area where your behavior is getting in the way of the outcome that you want and you're not aware of it. And so, and so that's, you know, that's part, that's, that's a major piece to convergence has to have constraint theory attached to it. Constraints can be in the organization. Constraints can be in the culture. Constraints can be in the spirit. 
constraints can be in us. I have direct power over what's in me and indirect power over everything else. So I want to manage me as best as possible. Easier said than done, by the way. Well, you know, that's such an interesting concept on the theme of clarity here. There was an, a study that came out of Stanford. They looked at contemporary leaders and what is the one characteristic across this group of leaders that identified them as high performers? And it was self-awareness. There you go. And so if I'm going in and I'm trying to become self-aware, I'm looking at strongholds, I'm looking at mindsets, haberns, and I, I agree with you, you know, working with, with clients, looking at their strengths, sometimes their strengths overused can absolutely be their biggest weakness and is what's preventing them from creating any kind of velocity in their life. So how do you blow some of those a way to get to the core of not maybe how you see yourself in the mirror, but what God sees when he looks at you. Well, that, go, that goes to another aspect of this, doesn't it, John? Which is when you're working on, on growth, what's the, emo, what's the relationship that you have with yourself during the process? Uh, I find a lot of people are very toxic in the way that they treat their undeveloped parts, their organization, their career, because of frustration. And instead of creating a safe place to explore um, your growth and your identity, many believers, and this is the nature of religion, the mischief of religion, it creates an even more focused mirror to measure you by. Mm -hmm. So um, we have the impossible standard of the perfect uh, word of God to measure everything that we could possibly be doing wrong. And if you don't have the right relationship with the Lord during the process— Unconsciously, God becomes for us the critic rather than the father. And uh, mm. so there's an essential um, uh, paradigm that we have to embrace, which is that the moment that we are born again, our position with God is not one of acceptance or rejection. It's one of maturity and that God unconditionally accepts us and loves us, knowing who our future self can be, knowing our struggle with what is, and that he's not inviting us to hide like Adam, you know, in the garden from his voice. He's inviting us to come to the throne of grace so that we can obtain mercy and help in a time of need. He's actually wanting to uh, join us in the place of pain and frustration and help us find the, uh, the secret of being able to work our way out. But when you come from, from the relationship of being beloved into the process, it's a lot different than coming from the place of beating myself up because I'm not good enough or I'm doing it wrong. The difference between that energy totally changes the, the way in which people go about personal growth. You know, Lance, uh, when I was at my accident, which I shared with you a little about before we started, and I was in God, God's presence when I was laying there on the ground, the love was so unconditional and so personal, but something that I've been reflecting on, everything else I've ever done in my life, you know, this whole concept of I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I think is so self-defeating because in that moment, everything I'd done previously, it was like God didn't care. It wasn't relevant. He just loved me in that moment and saw me for what he had cre created me to be. And what you're talking about, I think, just brings that to a new level. If I'm in partnership with somebody who loves me that intently and wants the best for me, now I can be looking at things from a completely different filter as I start working on myself. Absolutely. I mean, I mean and, and to remind ourselves that God is not um, sitting as a um, disapproving father figure. 
but that what's in us is Abba Father. And, you know, I had a profound experience once, and I, it kind of came to me again last night when I was praying. I'll go for walks and pray because I get restless and I, I find sitting still it actually doesn't work for me. So I have to be in motion. And um, I went for a walk and was praying. And I had, I don't know if I can convey this properly here, but I had this awareness that the Lord sees me in Christ. He doesn't see me outside of Christ. And that when we become a child of God or a daughter, a daughter of God, or a son of God, what happens is we receive a new nature. And in a sense, the Lord sees Jesus in us. And we're a, there's a new part of us. There really is a new name, a new nature that is in there. The Lord isn't looking at the part of the wilderness that hasn't been tamed. He's in the garden with you in who you really are. And if, if we could see who we really are and who we're really called to be, we would approach our weaknesses not from a fighting and a striving, but a partnering with the grace of God to overcome. And we create a whole different energy around us that would be uh, laced with grace. And that's what I mean by even creating that Eden in the midst of a workplace where our relationships are not toxic and not driven by corporate politics. Now, certainly you have to be shrewd because you're surrounded by people that are driven by politics. But what we're driven by is um, a mission to see people with the eyes of God and to look at them realistically and taking their developed and undeveloped parts and, um, and not judging them because of what we see, but earning the right to mentor, coach, and help people in becoming successful. And in a strange way, I, I think that we all ought to be rabbis to uh, the people that work for us and work around us, committed to helping them discover who they are and discover the invitation of God that is in their life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, it makes sense. You know, what I'm thinking as you're talking is, you know, when you're working with somebody to this whole concept of conversion, you know, finding that passion, you know, you call it the juice. Uh, you know, what is that, that to people connect to that? There's so many people I talk to, they just feel like almost like a rudderless ship. They would love to have that calling, that purpose that's really definite and, you know, defined in their life. And they're really struggling with with pulling those three pieces together, as you talked about. You know, somebody's listening to this right now, and they're like, "Man, that, you just described me." What? How do you help people in that spot? Well, believe it or not, women are easier than men, and and it's probably because women are more comfortable with their emotions than men are. And I think there actually is uh, data that says that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain are wired somewhat differently in a female than a male. And that there's more ability to connect with feelings and thinking at the same time. So women can actually have tears in their eyes and be coherent. Whereas for a man, if he gets emotional, he has to pull out of it to think. And it's, <laughs> it's a sexist or gender statement. I actually think there's some science behind that that can back me up. But the, um, the real issue there when you go to the heart is to be able to have the courage to define what it is that you really want in life and what really is important to you. Women, so for instance, I do a thing called a passion process, and, um, and maybe I can make some of these resources available to you guys. Passion process is where I take people live in front of an audience and have them list what are the seven, eight, or nine things that bring them the most alive, that give them the most juice, that are um, things that are measurable in terms of when you're doing it or not doing it. So it's got some definition to it. What are some examples of that, Lance? Well, it could be, for instance um, – and this is where it gets controversial. 
easier if you're dealing with someone who's not a Christian, oddly enough, because they don't have a religious paradigm. Suppose somebody wants to make a lot of money and they love wealth and they love creation and they want to have a house here and a house there and they and they and they really have a desire to uh, build a business that is big and successful and is significant and can make a difference in people's lives and be able to make a lot of money. And they want to be also part of a dream team of uh, experts that are really gifted in what they do. So they might say, I really want to be a millionaire. I really want to have a company that makes a difference. I want significance in achieving these things. I want to work with a team of people that I love to work with. And I want to work with clients that are, whose lives are changed by the things that I do. Here's the truth. Um, Every Christian I know that runs a business or a ministry has that as a secret index of what they really want, but they would never say it because it sounds so carnal. And so the first thing that I've, I've done with people is say, let's get clear about what you really want, because if God wired you to make money, what we're looking at here is passion, not values. Values is what you do with the money. So let's say that you're called to make money. I don't want you fighting with money in the back of your head because the church told you you can't serve God and mammon. Maybe you're serving God and you're plundering hell and you're, and you're, and you're amassing wealth. And if you don't do it, there's, you're a sheep. Some goat's going to take that spot and, cure, and cultivate that, that financial blessing and the kingdom never gets access to mm. it. So what I train people to do is to say, let's get honest about you have a significance desire. If you do temperament studies, a high I personality, a high D, D's like to be in charge, I's like to influence, they like to see and be seen and to have significance. I don't want somebody to make believe that isn't in them. I want them to own it. Here's the trick. Describe what it is you really, 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 really want, dream, and hope for that is in your personal you know, desire. Put it out there so we can look at it. Now let's talk about the values in your life that you really, really, really believe ultimately matter. If you're clearing your values, they tell you what you do with your passion. If you never allow your passions to be articulated, you live in this incongruent battle with yourself because you think that fame and significance and being seen is not really a worthy goal because, after all, we should be humble and Jesus made himself of no reputation. I don't really know, frankly, people that are um, really in the limelight and love their job who don't have an itch to be seen and heard. They do. Preachers want you to hear them, but they would never say being significant and well-known and popular and famous is a goal because it sounds so carnal. I'd rather have a more authentic Christian life. I'd rather say God wired you for that. He wired you to be heard. He wired you to be influential. He wired you to make wealth. Now, um, congruence is are you honest about what you're passionate about? And do your values get lived with the achievement of it? What are you doing with the money you've got? How are you leveraging the platform God gave you? How are you treating the people that are the machinery of your significant business? Because that's where your values prove whether you're congruent. So that's the third C. Convergence is the sweet spot where you're doing what you were created to do. Constraints are the spiritual and behavioral issues that get in the way of living in your talent and how you show up. And congruence is where your values and your achievements are so harmoniously aligned that you can manage the acquisition of wealth and influence without it controlling or corrupting you because you're ultimately rooted and grounded in love and the call of the Father and not in the things that you do. This enables you to have the courage to be unpopular instead of significant, to, um, to give away money rather than accumulate it. But you can't give away what you don't have. 
and you can't use the platform God gave you to influence people if nobody's heard you. Does that make sense? So I don't find that, I find women, like I said earlier, are far more honest about what they're passionate about. And for instance, with, with one woman that comes to my mind, she had, um, it was, uh, it was, it had to do with women that are abused. Women, setting women free who are abused and suffering. Now, she had her career goals in the first four spots and setting women free from pain and their personal history was like number six or seven. That was one of her passions that she had listed. That was one of her passions. But when she went down the list, dun, 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 when she got to that one, there was more emotion, more depth, more clarity and more juice than any of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I looked at that and I said, why is that down there uh, at six or seven instead of one or two? And her answer, which was tr- truly profound, is, well, maybe I was afraid that if I said it too early, um, people might misunderstand it. Or maybe it's because if I was really clear about it and I didn't get it, it would be a heartbreak. So I, I kind of subdue it. And I think that that's the, uh, that's the thing that I, that I came away with that's so powerful, is that many times what we really, really want, we don't have an opportunity to articulate for fear that it doesn't sound spiritual. Or what will other people think if I really say this is what I really want? Or should I even want this? And um, once we say it, you know, there's always the possibility you'll never get it. And so sometimes it's better to live in denial of what you want and never get it than to be really clear about it and be disappointed by life because it doesn't show up. And so and that's an interesting it's I mean, women, I know I think there's a lot of women that can relate to that and probably a lot of men. Lance, there is some science behind why men can't access their emotions as well as women. And in 2001, Dr. Dobson released his book, Bringing Up Boys. And in it, he pointed to a scientific study that basically said once testosterone really kicks into the fetus, it actually washes the brain with testosterone and actually damages the corpus callosum, which is the the nerve connections that connect the right and left hemispheres. And and so that damage, that, that wash really will allow men to be, as I've heard one author say, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. Men, we're in these little compartments, we're doing these little things. We don't have the ability to intertwine all of these aspects of our lives. And so ultimately, really, when when women say men are brain damaged, in, in a sense, we kind of are. <laughs> well, there, well, there's the data. That, <laughs> that proves my theory. So, so how particularly do you coach men to dig into those emotions and really dial into their passions to really get to those hard issues? Because if it's so hard for us to get to that point, how do you coach and help us to find that? And that's a great question. And, and, uh, and I, be, I believe that, you know, when Saul came before Samuel, Samuel said to him, tomorrow about this time, Um, we'll meet and I'll reveal to you all that is in your heart. He was about to unpack the destiny of Saul, who was called to be a king. My sense is that people have an intuition and a sense in their gut of what it is they're called to do and and who they really are. And it requires, if you don't mind me sounding a bit Pentecostal for a moment, it requires a certain kind of prophetic, like Samuel, moment 
when you have an encounter with who you really are and what you're really called to do. And um, there's somebody there to affirm it and to say, that's what you do great. That's, that's you at your best. I think that we all need to have people around us that remind us of moments when we're really showing up the way that we want to so that we can be aware that this is really me. This is the, this is the me that I want to be. And this is, this is the me that I'm called to be. And uh, creating the place where people can get clear on passion is, and getting clear on values requires that you create a place of self-disclosure, which is very rare because self-disclosure requires risk. So you have to be intentional about creating an environment where people are comfortable um, sharing what their dreams are and also being willing to be challenged on whether or not, like for instance, in this process, I often find what people say they want is not what they really want. And I have to dig down, but it's in them. The nice thing is you don't create a passion, you discover it. And you don't create a calling, you unveil it. And so what we're really engaged in is the process of discovery. And in the right environment, um, all the clues are there. The breadcrumbs are all leading to the gingerbread house. It just requires a place you can sit back and assess life patterns and share dreams and visions, share the high points and the low points of your experience and what it was like. And the more that men get comfortable being authentic about their um, their personal history and their highs and lows in an environment that doesn't judge them for what they share, the more power they have to get clear on who they are. And I'm all about creating that kind of courageous culture for men and women where you can own your passion and say, yeah, I really do want to, you know, uh, I got a guy, I got a friend of mine I coach who has a $100 million business. He's in the process of building a $300 million business. And um, my role curious enough, is is to help him stay connected to the pleasure of the father because he's like a runner, like in that Eric Lytle, God made him fast. He made him to build entrepreneurial businesses that employ 800 people and create wealth out of out of uh, ideas. And uh, my, my goal is to keep him in that heartfelt relationship with Jesus so that he is he is walking in the joy of the Lord. And he was the one who told me, and this blew my mind, he said, you know what? I hear what you teach about everyone has a sphere of influence. And yeah, okay, I get it that, you know, I'm in the business mountain and I, my goal is to be at the top of my game. He said, but quite frankly, um, when I make money, that money needs to have a purpose. And um, I believe that God wants me to fund his end time kingdom work. So what I want you to do, Lance, is I want you to think about not only helping me achieve what God called me to do, but keep me connected with the Lord while I'm doing it, and think about what that money's supposed to be used for. And that was a whole different, whoa, you know? And, that, and so then I'm thinking, you know what? Especially in business, if God gives you wealth, what are you doing with wealth creation in order to advance the kingdom of God? And uh, are you really doing something with it? Because I found a phenomenon that a lot of people that make it actually don't know. How, it's like Frodo with the ring. They don't really know how to let go of it. And, uh, and so, you know, people need not only to be um, coached in these processes, but they need relationships at every level that hold them true to what their real integrity is in what they do with the success God gives them. 
Like I said at the top, this conversation went so well, and Dr. Lance was so gracious with his time that we just decided to split it into two episodes. So be sure to download it when it releases in a couple days. If you'd like more information about Lance, his website, his book that he co-authored with Bill Johnson, his Facebook page, which is very active and really how I got familiar with him, his Twitter handle, his blog, just go to eternalleadership.com slash zero three zero. That's eternalleadership.com slash zero three zero. And there in our show notes, we'll have links to that plus links to purchase audio and video messages like doing business supernaturally and your destiny dashboard. Um, Doing business supernaturally is really well worth the investment. All those links and more, eternalleadership.com slash 030. We'll also have that link embedded in the description and information on this MP3. So if you're listening on your computer, smartphone, or tablet, just look around to find the summary of this episode, and you'll see that link to the show notes right in there. Thanks for downloading this episode of Eternal Leadership. If you're new, there are a few ways in which you can get in touch with us. Firstly, you can check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash eternal leadership. We've got quotes, articles, highlights from past episodes, facebook.com slash eternal leadership. Secondly, you can follow us on Twitter at eternal leaders. And thirdly, you can join our private LinkedIn group. It's a way to interact with John, myself, many of our guests, and a number of fellow listeners. Just search for eternal leadership in the search box on LinkedIn, and you'll see the group right there. Special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his editing and production help on this episode. Next time on eternal leadership, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Lance Wallnow. And for many believers now, the uh, the days of um, being conflicted about, should I be in ministry? Should I make money? Should I just, we need to get past that. That's C-spot run. We need to go into the, 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 the deeper conversation, which is if God called you to wealth and influence and politics and government and media, if he called you to be a songwriter or an artist or a fashion director, grab it and say, this is what I feel my passion is. I'm asking the Lord to show me how this serves to advance his kingdom. In the meantime, I'm going to pursue the thing that I love and not try to make it fit arbitrarily into what the church tells me is spirituality. Because if you're not careful, you will, in an effort to circumcise your passion, you will castrate your calling. And so people cut off their ambition because they feel it's an unworthy goal to have influence or be in acting or whatever. I say, how do you know that God isn't calling you like Esther? to be in a beauty contest because you're going to be marrying the king. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.